let's just jump right into our our sermon on this morning for uh, everybody is a worship leader. Um, today is preaching on preaching. So I'm excited to, to stand behind God's word and say, what are we doing here? You know, when a preacher stands behind the word of God for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, 30 minutes on a weekly basis, what's, what's happening? Is this, is this a TED talk? Is this a spiritual TED talk? What's going on here? So I'm going to pray. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and get it open to Galatians 3. I'm going to try like really hard this morning to not be hyper romantic in my view on preaching. I'm going to try. I'm just going to try and be as nuts and bolts and practical as possible. But for those of you who know me, know that I've got a big heart for preaching and I have a romantic view of preaching. And I'm going to try to not be too romantic, but I'm going to guess it's kind of going to leak out of me. So just give me some, give me some grace if that happens. Let me pray and then we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the gathering together of these people this morning. Already, there's just been so many times this morning since 6 a.m. that this church has blessed me and built me up and like said the exact thing that I need to hear (laughs) or sang the exact song that I needed to sing, told the story that I needed to hear, prayed the prayer that I needed to pray. There's just been so many times that these people have built me up this morning. I just don't know what I would do without the church. I don't know how I would ever follow Jesus without the local church. I don't know how I would ever find a shred of encouragement out in the wilderness and in the world. It's just not, it's just not out there. But it's in here because your spirit is at work in here. So as we open up your word, Stand behind it, preach from it, give good news out of it. My prayer is that we would not hear Cole Dyke preach, but that we would hear God speak to us. That stuff happens. There's times that I get up behind the pulpit and I just preach what I think is a dynamite sermon that I think was just a banger. And there's just crickets from the church. And there's these other times where I get up and I feel like I'm just a mess and I'm stumbling around and tripping all over myself. And you light people on fire with that. You know, this is just, it's what, this is your thing, Lord. We need you to show up. We need you to speak to us. We need you to whisper to us. We need you to encourage us. We need you to grab us by the shoulders and wake us up. And so Lord, would you do that this morning as we think about the reality of what preaching objectively is not what it feels like or not what my expectations are, not what the culture tells me it is, but what preaching objectively is. Just wake us up to that reality, Lord. Cultivate in us a high and exalted view of preaching. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. And all God's people said, amen. So we're in, a, we're in week three of our sermon series, Everybody's a Worship Leader. This is just going to be like a really quick five-week sermon series where we're just going to take apart all the elements of what church is and what we do on church on Sunday mornings. And what we want to do is we want to look at all the four elements and we want to show you by rooting them to the fact that all of these are, um, they're all expressions of worship. Sometimes I get a little bit feisty when I preach at a different church. 
because we don't do this here at Frontier, but sometimes, you know, you preach at a different church or you preach at a, a little conference here that, you know, whatever, and um, they get done with the singing or after the preaching, you get done with the preaching and they say, okay, let's stand and let's start worshiping again. I'm like, what have you been doing for the last 40 minutes when I'm behind your word? And so what we want to do is we want to show you how all these four elements are expressions of worship. Last week was singing as worship. This week is preaching as worship. We're also going to do, uh, Snowball's going to do liturgy next week as worship. And then we'll kind of finish it off with communion as worship. And the central thesis of this sermon series, even though it's short, is going to be super simple. And it's this. Since all believers have the Holy Spirit, not just Cole, not just Joseph. Since all believers have the Holy Spirit, all believers every Sunday have the responsibility to lead the church in worship, which is what you've already done for me this morning. All believers every Sunday have the responsibility to lead the church in worship. And I'm psyched for this morning, obviously, because we're talking about preaching, baby. And I really, I really believe that preaching changes lives. I wouldn't give six, eight, 10 hours of my week to preaching if I didn't believe that preaching changed lives. Let me tell you how preaching changes lives. Everybody in our church, whether or not they know it, was born in the wake of a single sermon that was preached in the ancient world. One sermon. Everybody in this church was born in the wake of this sermon. I want to tell you about that sermon. The preacher of this sermon was regarded as having exceptional insight into the counsel of God. And so when the time came around in the ancient world for him to preach this sermon, he had a small audience, but the audience was unusually eager to hear from the preacher. And so the stage was set for something dramatic to be preached. The sermon was, as you can imagine, with these key factors rushing together to create the perfect atmosphere, the sermon was electric. The preacher, being wise and crafty, structured his sermon around one singular concern that he knew his audience would want to hear about. Though he didn't give his sermon a title, it could have been titled, How to Become More Like God. What could be a godlier subject to talk about than that? And as for the content of the actual sermon, it was surprisingly short. He waxed tersely. Every word mattered. A decent amount of the sermon was exegetically accurate, though it had one serious flaw. But you could argue that it had about as many true things in common as most modern sermons do at least enough that was true about it to make the rest of the sermon believable. And so the audience was hooked from the go, right from the opening question of the sermon. What's God really like? And with that one question, the audience was on the edge of its seat. And while the audience was on the edge of his seat, rather than preaching a sermon about obeying God and loving God, the preacher concluded by saying, did God really say what he saw? Did God really say what he meant? Is that really what God is like? Don't listen to him. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And from that one little sermon, sin and death entered into the world and reigned over the world. And you know the sermon I'm talking about if you've been in church your whole life. It's Genesis 3. You know the preacher. The preacher is Satan. You feel the effects of this sermon. A world filled with sin. So when Christians come to the pulpit and sit underneath the preaching of the word of God and listen to a sermon, Christians are not people who say, it's just rhetoric. Christians are people who say, no, 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 no. Words create worlds. Words create worlds. And so at the center of God's strategy to fight back against Satan, God builds the church. And in the center of the church, alongside singing in the sacraments, God builds pulpits. And he puts men behind these pulpits and he commands them to preach. And the sermon that he has given them to preach is the great reversal sermon. We stand behind our pulpit and we point at the tree that Christ hung from and we say, no, 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 no. When you eat of that tree, the tree that Christ died from, then you surely will not die. Amen? And that's the sermon of the Christian preacher. And so I've got really just one goal in my 30 minutes with us this morning, talking and thinking about preaching. I want to challenge all of us in this room to engage with preaching in such a way that you can say every Sunday where the Bible is preached, every Sunday where the gospel is preached, you can walk away from every sermon saying, I saw Christ crucified today. I saw him. I want to show you where I'm getting this from in my Bible. Paul is really, really passionate about this in Galatians 3. I'm not going to spend too much time expositing this text. Instead, I want to show you how a text that doesn't appear to be about preaching is actually totally about preaching. And if you've never seen this in Galatians 3, 1 through 2, wear a helmet because Paul's going to blow your mind this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. And Paul is saying this, by the way, because he has spent at least a little bit amount of time pastoring the church in Galatia. And he's pastored the church in Galatia. He's preached the gospel over and over and over again to them. And what's happening in Galatia is they're drifting from the gospel of Jesus into a gospel of works righteousness. And so Paul is, I think like any pastor would be, um, frustrated. And so he says in Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I only want you to learn this from, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Before you sit, one more time. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's interesting. Go ahead and have a seat. That's interesting because if you know your Bible, you know that Christ wasn't crucified in Galatia. This is 
So subversive and so subtle. It's great. Paul says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, when you read that phrase in verse one, um, all of the lights should be blinking on the dashboard. What's, what's, go, what, what's he mean by that? What in the world is going on? This is the type of thing you've got to think critically about. And listen, you've got to think critically about this because this is the type of thing that biblical critics will get a hold of and use to shred the reliability of the Bible. They'll circle verse one and they'll point at you and say, see, Jesus wasn't crucified in Galatia. It says in the New Testament that he was crucified on Golgotha. Paul's wrong. The Bible's not reliable. And maybe the critics are right. The people reading this letter, the Galatians, they weren't present at the foot of Golgotha on the day that Christ was crucified. And yet here's Paul saying that it was before their very eyes. It's kind of like you almost want to grab Paul by the, you know, you want to grab him by the shoulders and shake him and be like, bro, don't screw this up, man. Don't put an error in the Bible and make this thing unreliable. You know better than this, Paul. Don't screw up the Bible here. Why would Paul think that the Galatians were present at the crucifixion? Is he making a chronological error or is there something else here? Well, let's zoom in a little bit more on the text. Believe it or not, what Paul doesn't say in Galatians 3 is that Christ was crucified before their very eyes. He didn't say that. He almost says that. What he says is far more brilliant, way more spectacular, and skillfully nuanced. Look at first one closer. He says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let's say that one out loud. You say that? Portrayed. Okay. So Christ wasn't crucified in Galatia, but apparently something happened in Galatia that portrayed Christ as crucified. And so again, all the lights on your dashboard should be blinking as you think through this. How, how is Christ publicly portrayed in the world or in or in Galatia. Well, maybe, maybe Paul hired an artist to come spray paint graffiti art of the crucified Christ on the government buildings of Galatia. And that's his way of saying that Christ was publicly portrayed in Galatia, right? No, that's silly. Then, then how in the world is Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? And the answer, of course, is in Paul's next question in verse two. He says, well, let me ask you this then. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by Hearing with faith. So how was Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Answer, by hearing with faith. So apparently something happened in Galatia that turned hearing into seeing and turned ears into eyes. And the person who showed me this is a dude who's been dead for a long time, but I was reading his commentary on Galatia. And what John Calvin said is absolutely penetrating. He says this, and he's right about Galatians chapter three. He says, quote, therefore, in the model of the ministry of Paul, let those who enter the ministry of the gospel learn not merely to speak, but to penetrate into the consciences of men to make them see Christ crucified before their very eyes. So what Calvin is saying and what I think, you know, Paul is saying is that when people sit underneath gospel preaching and hear it with faith, Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified before our very eyes. 
In other words, preaching makes Christ crucified publicly portrayed in a church. And that means that every Sunday that you engage with preaching, you should engage with preaching in such a way that you walk away from the sermon saying, I saw him. I saw him this morning. I saw him with my very own eyes. Like a portrait that was publicly portrayed, I heard and the hearing became seeing. And so this is, this is a lot here. This is, this, is, this is a lot. So what I want to do is I want to break this down uh, into practical nuts and bolts. And I want to give you three strategies for engaging with preaching in such a way that you don't leave a single sermon unchanged by the gospel of Jesus. Because preaching matters. Preaching matters a lot. And you can leave every sermon on Sunday morning having been transformed. But you can't do that and be lazy, okay? Sorry, that was a little harsh. It's probably true. But you don't want to leave a single sermon blind to the crucified Christ publicly portrayed before your very eyes. So let me give you three ways to engage with the preaching in such a way that you leave being like, man, I saw Jesus. So first, the first thing is, the church needs to cultivate a high view of preaching. And fortunately for us at Frontier Church, even though we're young, we're part of a theological tradition that has historically believed that when the word of God is rightly preached, it is not merely the preacher who is speaking, but it is God himself who is speaking. What happens in biblical preaching is that the church and the people of God are transported through the preaching to the foot of Mount Sinai, once again receiving the law of God from the mouth of God. And then the people of God are transported through the preaching of the gospel to Mount Mount Zion, the joyful city where God and Jesus is enthroned. And so preaching is designed by God to transport you as God's kingdom to Jesus's throne room. In other words, when you reckon with preaching on Sunday mornings, you're supposed to do it on your knees before King Jesus. Not like you're going to get like a tight talk. You know, you don't come, you don't come to preaching and think it'd be nice to learn a little bit something new this morning. That's what you do on YouTube. You can get that on YouTube. When you come before preaching, you say, God is present and he's gonna speak to me. So cultivate a high and exalted view of preaching. Second, let me get a little bit more practical here. Second, commit to creative, intelligent, and spirit-filled participation. As the, preacher, as the preacher shovels out the coals from the furnace of God's word, you should walk across those coals. You should be actively dragging your own life over the coals of the preaching of God's word. As the preacher preaches, you should be asking yourself, well, do I believe this? Or if it's a story in the Bible, do I respond like the characters in the text? Why do I? Why don't I? Have I seen this truth illustrated in my own life? If so, where? Do I need to repent of not believing this? Okay, then I need to repent. But when the preacher shovels the coals of God's word out, you walk across them on Sunday mornings in your heart. There's really no reason to ever settle for being bored while somebody's preaching, unless you're a boring person. Preaching. I don't know why I'm so feisty. I get this. I think it's the jersey. (laughs) Preaching centered on the word of God is never boring or Better yet, as one astute theologian who's much smarter than me once said, quote, the sermon is the work of the preacher, but the preaching is the work of the whole church. You're still leading worship when you sit down for preaching. And third, don't just commit to creative, intelligent, spirit-filled participation with your mind or your heart. Third, participate with your whole body. 
I, you're going to love this. At least I do. Okay. Um, in one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons and Jonathan Edwards, he's been dead too for a couple hundred years, but he's the guy who infamously preached what some people say is the most riveting sermon in, you know, all of American history. And so this guy, when he preached, it was like a nail biter. Okay. But even Jonathan Edwards, and I found this in one of his old manuscripts of one of his sermons. And I just, I almost giggled and fell off my chair when I read it. So I was reading one of his old uh, sermon manuscripts and even Edwards had to say this to his church mid sermon. He said, quote, persons should avoid laying down their bodies in their seats in the midst of public worship. (laughs) Like he's preaching. He's like, hey, we should stop. Don't bring the Snuggies to church. Okay, stop pushing the chairs together and taking yourself a little napsky, okay? Even Edwards, who's like the most riveting preacher in American history, had to be like, hey, stop laying down in the middle of public worship. Uh, But nevertheless, I find that encouraging. (laughs) But nevertheless, when you engage with preaching, remember that it was God's idea to give you a body and that you're an embodied creature. Um, So when you're engaging with preaching, do what you got to do, man. Like you know yourself better than anybody else. Sit on the edge of your chair if you need to. Expect God to transform you. Shout amens when the preacher nails the gospel. Take notes if you struggle to stay focused. Whatever you got to do, listen. Experience the whole sermon uh, with somebody uh, who has been given a body by God. And that's a blessing. And so as you do these types of things, what ends up happening is that it changes the way that you experience the preaching of God's word. And you end up developing and cultivating a high and exalted understanding of preaching. You start to believe that words change worlds. You believe that words create worlds. This is what Paul thinks. Right? Like as a first century Jewish Christian writing Galatians here, Paul is saturated by the creation account in Genesis. He knows that all of creation was generated by God's spoken word. He knows that all of creation is upheld with God's spoken word. He knows that all of creation is an unbroken poem directly from the mouth of God upholding you right now. Paul really believes that words create worlds. And so he really believes that when the Holy Spirit works through preaching, Christ becomes publicly portrayed on Sunday mornings. And I think you know this, right? I've been thinking about this all week. How, how exactly do words create worlds? And I came up with a couple examples. Um, I don't know if I want to share them both. First, okay, um, first, words create worlds. And I got to justify this and prove this because yes, I used to be an English teacher and yes, now I'm a preacher. So like, of course it's beneficial for me to be like, hey, preaching is awesome, right? So I had to think critically through this. Like how exactly in my life has, have, have words created worlds? And even in this last week, it's been a doozy for me as I've racked my mind across this last week. And uh, I think the first thing that I thought of was words create worlds by reminding us of what we really have. And this is what good gospel preaching does. Preaching reminds us of what we have in Christ. Last weekend, um, the Dyke family went to the Wisconsin Dells. I don't know if you guys have been there. It was a blast. 
the water slides that this place has. I'm telling you, you got to go there if you haven't gone there. So Chloe and I, we had a blast there. We went with Chloe's family and just had a, just a great time. And I ended up coming home early on Saturday so that I could get back to lead church on Sunday morning. And so Chloe and the kids, they ended up staying with uh, their grandparents with Chloe's family. And I drove back and got back Saturday night. And uh, they didn't get back until Monday night. And here's the thing. On Sunday morning, when Chloe and the kids were gone at the Wisconsin Dells, I woke up and I went to church. And after church, you know what I did? I took a big fat nap. Just took a nap, you know? Empty house. I got up after that nap. And then you want to know what I did? I read some poetry. I read a book that I've been reading, tidied up the house a little bit. After I tidied up the house, Rocky (laughs) three. Not the best in the series, potentially the most underrated. And then I went to bed. And as I was going to pick up the kids the next day, I was driving and uh, I started thinking, a small piece of me, okay? Like this is something I need to put to death and this is something I need to crucify. But a small piece of me was like, man, that was such an easy Sunday. (laughs) That was easy. I'm gonna miss that because I went to go pick up the kids. And so I got to the, the, the pickup spot where the family was with Chloe's parents and I got out of the car And there was a small piece of me that was like, okay, buckle up, buttercup. (laughs) You know, it's time to be dad and husband. And uh, I was excited to see the kids. I really was. This is a small piece of me, right? I hugged them. I was excited to see them. But there was that small piece of me that was like, okay, get psyched up again. And uh, And then I heard Chloe's dad say something. And, uh... He was saying goodbye to the kids and he hugged Della and he hugged Russell. And I looked at him. He didn't say this to me. This little tear ran out of his eye and he said, man, life is going to be so boring again without these kids. I had to like, I just had to step away for a moment. And I was like, such a fool, you know? Because this is most of reality is just that you forget what you have. And you think like, man, life would be so much greener. And it's, it's just not. The life that God has given you is the life that's green. And you just forget everything that you have. And what preaching should always do is, is what my father-in-law did for me. With a few more words and explanations. <laughs> but it should always say to us, don't forget what you have in Christ. I know sometimes on Wednesday mornings you think life would be easier or better without Christ, and it's not. Don't forget of all the riches of the gospel, imputed righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the new creation that you're going to inherit. We need preachers to stand in front of us and say, don't forget. Don't forget what you have. Here's the second one. First, 
Words create worlds when preachers stand behind the word of God and remind us of all that we have in Christ. But the second one is potentially even more profound. Words create worlds when the preacher stands behind the word of God and reminds us of who we are in Christ, no matter how we feel that Sunday. Again, this happened to me earlier this week. I don't know what the deal is with this week. But earlier this week, I, I woke up uh, on Monday and I just had like a, like a 24-hour cold that put me out for like a day or two. I'm feeling like 100% now, so don't freak out. It was just a man cold, but it was a man cold, okay? So like it put me down. And uh, during that cold, I just was not helpful around the house. And so for whatever reason, that just broke me open. And, you know, when I got to work earlier or later that week, I just had to reach out to Chloe. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I just wasn't present, blah, 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 blah. And Chloe said a lot of helpful things to me. But there was one thing that stood out to me. Um, She said this. Well, before I tell you what she said, let me tell you something about myself. This might blow your mind, but there are days when I wish I were taller. (laughs) I'm only 5'7 on a good day. I used to say 5'8, but then God regenerated me. And I realized I had to be honest. So I'm 5'7, 135 pounds on a good day, right? I just wish I were taller, you know, had broader shoulders, stuff like that. And uh, Chloe left me this just, it's really helpful message. And in it, she said this, she said, you are the man of my dreams. Here's the thing, I'm not. I'm 5'7. 135 pounds. I got to shave more often. I bury myself in my work sometimes. And sometimes I'm just emotionally distant at home. There's just so much that I need to work on. I need to, be a, I need to be a better man. I need to be a better follower of Jesus, a better husband, a better father. But what do you think that did to me when I heard that? That's a proclamation. It's not a question. It's a proclamation. You are this, no matter what you think. I'll tell you what it did to me. All of a sudden, it didn't matter to me that I'm only 5'7". I started to stand a little taller. Shoulders came up a little bit more. Right, And this is profoundly the impact that the preaching of the gospel should always have on us. This is how preaching works. This is, what you, this is why we need preaching. You don't need good ideas. You have the internet. Right? You don't need good advice. You've got the public library. What you need is preaching, particularly declaration, where week in, week out, a preacher stands in front of you with his Bible open and the gospel in his mouth, and he says to you, because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God has declared you sinless and covered you in Christ's righteousness. And sometimes you're like, right, but... I don't always act righteous. I know. So it makes it good news. But God has declared you righteous. But I don't always feel righteous. Bro, I'm not here to tell you how you feel. Like gospel preaching is literally just telling you the facts. God has declared you righteous objectively, permanently, as a matter of concrete reality. When the God of the universe looks at you, he sees you as wrapped in the perfections of his son. And that's preaching. And what's the total impact of that? Well, the total impact of that is this. It doesn't matter that you're only 5'7 spiritually. 
It doesn't matter that you're only 130 pounds spiritually. When the gospel's declared over your life, you feel spiritually taller and bigger, not in a vain way, in a gospel-centered way. When the gospel's declared over your righteous, you begin to believe it. And when you believe it, you begin to live into it. And when you see yourself in light of the gospel, holiness and righteousness becomes actually attainable and possible because you find yourself living in a new world. I'm just not being cute when I say that words create worlds, right? This quote from Ian Murray, preacher, preacher guy, should blow your mind. He says, quote, when it comes to preaching, we do not need more polemics or apologists or preachers who encompass a wide range of natural knowledge, important though these things be. What we need are men of God who bring the atmosphere of heaven with them to the pulpit and speak from the borders of another world. That's preaching. When you speak from the borders of another world. So let me talk about these men that the church needs. I've already made some big demands on you guys when it comes to preaching. And it would be a shame if all I did was, you know, put expectations on the church for preaching and not talk about the preachers. So let me round that out a little bit. You've had three so far. Cultivate a high view of preaching, spiritually engage with preaching, and engage with the preaching with your whole body. To balance that out, let me give you four commitments from our preaching team that summarize what we need to do every time we preach and what we need you to hold us accountable to. First, we commit to preaching the text. People call this expository preaching. Um, Some people just use biblical preaching. That's great. Either one works. What we do is we take the biblical text and whatever the main point of that text is, we labor to make it the main point of our sermon. And so we labor to show you exactly why what we're saying is rooted in the biblical text. You'll notice that four or five different times as I was preaching through Galatians 3, I said, look at that, look at that. It's here, it's here. We preach the text. And even though biblical exposition is extremely extraordinarily important and indispensable, it's not the end goal of preaching. So first, we commit to preaching the text, but second, no matter what text we're preaching, we commit to preaching the gospel. People call this gospel-centered preaching, and we're big believers in it, because exposition isn't the end zone. It's an irreplaceable part of preaching, but it's the red zone, right? It's like the 19-yard line or the 10-yard line, not in the end zone. You're not in the end zone as a preacher, as a Christian preacher, until the cross of Christ is publicly portrayed. The gospel. That's always the end zone. The exposition, no matter what text or what subject it is, should always lead to a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. Or why Paul says to round things out in chapter two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, think about what it would be like to have Paul as your preacher. Can you imagine that in dialogue? Hey, Paul, what's the sermon about next Sunday? Christ crucified. All right, all right, but you preached that last Sunday. What's this Sunday? Christ crucified. Okay, right, but what's the next sermon series? Christ crucified. Oh my gosh, we're getting nowhere with this guy. You are though. We preach Christ crucified every Sunday. That's point number two. Here's point number three. Third, 
as preachers, we commit to preaching God's word with holiness. No, I don't mean that we're perfect men. And no, I don't mean this in a look down my nose way, but we must be preachers, pursuers of personal holiness before we step into public ministry. Has, the not, has not these past couple years of celebrity pastors taught us that? pursuers of personal holiness before we step into public ministry. Or as Francis Grimke once said to his preachers, quote, unless we're trying to be what we preach, we better not preach at all. Fourth, we commit to preaching in the spirit. This is because we just can't waste our time week after week listening to Cole. Just can't do it. Got too many things to do. Can't waste week after week listening to just Luke. We need to hear the Holy Spirit. So no matter how accurate our exegesis is, no matter how slick our outline is, no matter how much work we put into the sermon, those who preach at Frontier Church need to have the willingness to lay it all on the table on Sunday mornings and ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to these people? And whatever he tells us to set aside, we set aside. Whatever he tells us to magnify, magnify. Whatever he tells us to minimize, we minimize. But we must trust the spirit enough to prepare the sermon Monday through Saturday. And we must trust the spirit enough to change it all on Sunday mornings if he wants to. Because it's the Holy Spirit who changes lives through preaching. And I really believe this. I really believe that preaching changes lives Maybe this is because, no, it's not just because of this. But I did grow up with a, with a father who was a coach and a teacher. Some of our key leaders have told me, uh, they've heard me tell this story a million times. So just give me patience as I tell this. But I grew up with a dad who was a public teacher, public school teacher. And so the best moments of my life growing up, the ones I think about all the time were the moments where I was in the classroom listening to him teach or on the wrestling mat, watching him coach or on the football field, watching him coach. And I always used to just watch with awe. I would watch as his enthusiasm and his teaching just made people come to life. And I would watch as he would teach and the kids in the classroom wouldn't be bored anymore. And they'd have these lightning you know, expressions on their face and they would smile and laugh. And ever since I was little, I didn't have the language to articulate it all the way back then. But as I reach back into those moments, I now know that this is what I felt in those moments. And I felt it in the marrow of my bones watching my dad teach. I used to think, okay, if you can use words to make people feel joy, that must be why I exist. And I felt that way. And then when Jesus saved me, and I became part of a local church. I saw it again, but this time it was with the gospel of Jesus. And I saw the gospel being preached and I saw people out in the pews being transformed, having their faces melted off, right? And I thought, oh, if you can use words to make people feel joy in Christ, that must be why I exist. So I really believe that I'm not just Talking up here, I really believe that the Holy Spirit changes lives through preaching. And this is how the magic happens in preaching. When your responsibilities as a church, the three I talked about, overlap with the preacher's responsibilities, the four I talked about. When those two meet in the middle and the Spirit infuses it, then preaching becomes worship. We should preach 
and engage with preaching in such a way that just like Paul said to the Galatians, every Sunday we walk away, we should be able to say, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified right before my very own eyes. And if that's true, how could preaching not be worship? So let's pray. And then let's continue worshiping. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the goodness of biblical gospel-centered preaching, the type of preaching that opens up the word of God and proclaims the good news of Jesus to people who we just need it week after week after week after week. I mean, the Galatians needed it. They had drifted from the gospel and it had been merely years since Christ had been crucified. And they they didn't just have Pastor Stephen, they had Pastor Paul for a while and still they drifted. And so how much more do we need week in, week out preaching that publicly portrays Christ as crucified? And so while we're grateful for this church and while we're grateful for our preaching team, we thank you for the ultimate preacher, Jesus Christ, your son, who came to preach the good news and then to live it out by dying on the cross to take away our sins and cover us in righteousness. It's in the precious name of Jesus that all God's people prayed. Amen. I'm wearing colors that I don't usually wear, okay? And the reason why is because I lost a bet. And that's why you shouldn't make bets, everybody. I'm not even gonna say what bet I lost, okay? You can go ahead and conjure that up if you want. (laughs) I will say this. This is actually not the most embarrassing part of it. The most embarrassing part of it was actually last week when Stephen Kerr brought the jersey. <laughs> he, he, brought, he brought the jersey and he was like, hey, I, you know, I think this might be a little bit big for you, but why don't you try it on? And I tried it on. And I was like, I think it fits pretty good, right? I could even maybe get some shoulder pads underneath. I thought it fit pretty good. And I was like, no, dude, it's not too big. It fits. And Stephen says, good. It's Reese's. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Reese, for today's attire. Let me get back to where I was going before I was publicly shamed. Okay. Who's Reese? Reese is Stephen and Lauren Kerr's daughter. How, how old is Reese? I thought she was seven. Now you're going to preach. I'm just going to walk off. Okay. Okay. Chill. Everybody just chill. Okay. Okay. What was I talking about?